Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our series of sermons on the great doctrines of the Christian faith as they're summarized in the Belgic Confession of Faith. Today, with the Lord's help, we'll once again consider the subject of the church. Specifically, what is the true church? And how can we distinguish the true church from the false church? And in this connection, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 10, as we read the verses 1 through 18. Hear God's holy word. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay, down, I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father." Well, this ends the reading of the word of God. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to our hearts. Dear friends, there are a lot of churches in the world today. Recently, I read a statistic that there are over 40,000 denominations today. According to a directory I found online produced in 2012, there are, in my home city, which is a city of about 150,000 people, there are over 120 churches in this city representing 21 different denominations. And 31 of these churches are independent. That means they claim no denominational affiliation. Now, what are we to make of all of this? 
Last week in our series on the Belgic Confession, we learned that it is the duty of every true believer to attach himself to the church and to become a living member of it. But in light of the wide variety of churches today, how are we to know which church we should join? Can we just join any church? Is one church just as good as the next? Or are there things we should look for when joining a church? Well, we have an answer to that question in Article 29 of the Belgic Confession. In this article, we are confronted with the differences between the true church and the false church. And it's to that subject that we turn our attention with God's help. The theme for the sermon is the true church. And we'll consider, first of all, its marks, and secondly, its members. I observed earlier that Article 29 of the Belgian Confession distinguishes between the true church and the false church. Now, the first question that comes to mind is this. Why does our confession even make that distinction? Why is this so important? Well, the reason is stated in the very first sentence of this article, and I quote, We believe that we ought diligently and circumspectly to discern from the word of God which is the true church, since all sects which are in the world assume to themselves the name of the church. End quote. So the reason why we need to distinguish between the true and the false church is because there are kinds of all kinds of sects in the world today that claim to be the church but clearly are not. Now you notice that the word sect here is used. What is a sect? Well the word sect is derived from a Latin word meaning to follow. So a sect is a following. It's a group of people who follow a certain line of teaching. And that line of teaching is usually propounded by a charismatic leader. And this teaching emphasizes one truth above all others, or it holds to something that is clearly at variance with standard orthodoxy. In other words, it holds to heresy. Now, during the time that the Belgian Confession was written, this term sex referred primarily to the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists were the theological ancestors of modern-day Baptists and Mennonites. And they believed many of the same things that the Reformers did, but some of them held to unorthodox views regarding the sacraments, the swearing of oaths, taking up of arms, the right of private property, the authority of the civil government, and the end times. Now today, we may apply this term more broadly to include such groups as Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, Christadelphians, all of whom claim to be churches, but who also hold to unorthodox teaching concerning the nature of Christ, the Word of God, and the doctrine of the Trinity. Mormons are especially bold in their claim, calling themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And many of these groups even act like a church. Their members sing, they read the Bible, they take up offerings and administer sacraments. But despite their claims, they are not the church, they are sects. Now in light of the presence of these sects, our 
confession says we ought diligently and circumspectly to discern from the word of God which is the true church. In other words, we should not be indifferent about this matter. It is vitally important that we understand the difference between a sect on the one hand and the church on the other, and between the true church and the false church. So how do we know whether a church is true? Well, before answering that question, our confession says that in distinguishing the true church from the false church, we are not speaking of hypocrites who are, and I quote, mixed in the church with the good, yet are not of the church, though externally in it. But we say that the body and communion of the true church must be distinguished from all sects who call themselves the church, end quote. So our confession here acknowledges that there are hypocrites in the church. Now that's exactly what the scriptures teach. Jesus teaches this in the parable of the wheat and the tares, as well as the parable of the wedding feast and the parable of the dragnet. In all of these parables, the point is made that within the visible church of Christ, there are two kinds of people. There are converted and unconverted. There are believers and unbelievers, or as the term is used here, hypocrites. Hypocrites are mixed in with the church, but they are not part of the church, at least not fully. They are only part of the church in an external sense, since the church, properly understood, is a gathering of true believers only. Now, needless to say, this truth needs to shape how we preach and how we view the congregation. We should not, as some do, assume that everyone, or at least most people in the congregation, is not saved, and therefore direct the preaching primarily towards them. Neither should we, again, as some others do, assume that everyone or most people in the congregation are saved, and therefore direct the preaching primarily towards them. We must view the congregation neither idealistically nor pessimistically, but realistically, consisting of both believers and unbelievers, converted and unconverted, true Christians and hypocrites, and ensure that the preaching addresses both. Now sometimes, depending on the text, the sermon will be more focused on believers. At other times, again, depending on the text, it will focus more on unbelievers, but both must be addressed in the preaching. So back to the question, how can we tell whether a church is a true church? Well, our confession answers this question by listing the marks of the true church, and there are three of them. And the first mark is this, the pure preaching of the word of God. Now, of the three marks, this mark is by far the most important. The true church is known primarily by the pure preaching of the word of God. Earlier we read from John chapter 10. In that passage, our Lord compares himself to a shepherd and his people to sheep. And as the shepherd, he calls his sheep, and his sheep in turn hear his voice. Well, how does the shepherd call? He calls through his word, specifically through the preaching of his word. When the word is being faithfully preached, it's like Christ himself is calling to us. Now, how do we know if the word is being preached faithfully? Well, it must certainly be biblical. 
It must be based on and fully and faithfully expound the word of God. The church may have many things in its favor, but if it does not faithfully proclaim the word of God, it is not a true church. Conversely, a church may have many things wrong with it, but if it preaches the Bible, then it is a true church. But there are other elements that should be present in the preaching as well. Not only must the preaching be biblical, it should also be confessional. That means it should conform to the doctrinal standards of the church. In other words, it must be orthodox. It must be true to the teaching of Scripture. The preaching should also be experiential. That means it must give due consideration to the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart and life of the believer. It must acknowledge the struggle, not only in coming to faith in Christ, but also in living out of faith in Christ and provide pastoral guidance in that struggle. The preaching should be discriminating. That is, it must pay attention to the various spiritual states of the hearers, true believers, weak in faith, those who lack assurance, those who are deceiving themselves, those who are backslidden, those who are not saved and are living careless lives, and so on. And the preaching needs to give a word in season to each as time and opportunity permit. The preaching must also be searching. That means it must probe the hearts and the consciences of the hearers both believers and unbelievers, by asking questions for self-examination, exposing sin and unbelief. The preaching of the word must be Christ-centered. It must preach Christ from the text, pointing the hearers to him, assuring them of his ability and his willingness to save and to help. It must regularly and passionately urge his hearers to faith and repentance in Christ. It must freely and warmly offer Christ and all of his benefits to the hearers and to urge all who come under the preaching to partake of these benefits. The preaching finally should be balanced. That means it must give due weight to man's misery and how he may be delivered from his misery and what gratitude he owes to God for such deliverance. And it must give equal weight both to divine sovereignty and to man's responsibility. Now, no doubt, the preaching should contain other elements as well. This is just a sample. And some of these elements might be stronger than others, depending on the church and depending on the pastor who's preaching. But all of them should be present to at least some degree. So the pure preaching of the word of God, that's the first mark of the true church. The second mark is the proper administration of the sacraments. Now these two things go together, word and sacrament. The word appeals to our sense of hearing, the sacraments to our sense of sight. The word works faith, the sacraments strengthen and confirm faith. Now what do we mean by the proper administration of the sacraments? Well, the church where the sacraments are administered properly will first of all administer the correct number of sacraments. And there are two of them, and only two. There's baptism and there's the Lord's Supper. Such a church will also teach the biblical meaning of the sacraments, which is that neither sacraments confer grace to the recipient, but serve only to signify and seal the promises of God. Such a church will also permit only the proper recipients of the sacraments, that is, those who are, as far as we can tell, true Christians. 
The third mark of the true church is the exercise of church discipline. Now this mark proceeds from the other two. Where there is true preaching of the word and where the sacraments are properly administered according to the word of God, there will also be the exercise of Christian discipline. Conversely, where there is no discipline, the sacraments will not be administered properly and eventually that will affect the preaching of the word of God. Now, sadly, many churches today don't see this. They actually think that it's wrong for a church to administer discipline on its members. And the most common argument against administering discipline is that it is unloving and judgmental. After all, we are told, who are we to cast the first stone at anyone when we have so many faults of our own? But dear friends, nothing could be further from the truth. The truth is discipline is good and necessary. If we love our children, we will discipline them. Why? Because discipline is good for them. It will help them to walk in the way that they should go. And it's no different in the church. When someone is going astray and they refuse to listen to warnings and admonishments, the most loving thing that a church can do is to administer discipline. Now, we don't have time to explain all that in detail now. We hope to do that later on when we come to Article 32. But suffice it to say that a church that does not administer discipline is not a true church. Well, these are the three marks of the true church. A true church faithfully preaches the word of God, administers the sacraments, and exercises Christian discipline. In short, as our confession says, the true church is that that church where all things are managed according to the pure word of God, all things contrary thereto rejected, and Jesus Christ is acknowledged as the only head of the church. Now, in applying these three marks, it's important to remember that no church will ever measure up to all three marks perfectly. The church on earth will always be imperfect. The point here is that where these three marks are evident, even with much weakness and shortcoming, it is still a true church of Jesus Christ. And that means, as we saw last time, and as is also repeated in this article, that no one, absolutely no one, has a right to separate himself from it and still call himself a Christian. Now, in contrast to the marks of the true church, our confession goes on, in the last paragraph of this article, to delineate the marks of the false church. And what is the false church? What are the marks of the false church? Well, there's three of them as well. The first is this. The false church ascribes more power and authority to herself and her ordinances than to the word of God and will not submit herself to the yoke of Christ. Secondly, the false church does not administer the sacraments as appointed by Christ in his word, but adds to and takes from them as she thinks proper. Thirdly, the false church relies more upon men than upon Christ and persecutes those who live holily according to the word of God and rebuke her for her errors, covetousness, and idolatry. Now clearly our confession here is thinking of the Roman Catholic Church. Although the Roman Catholic Church is still a church, it's not a sect, it is sadly and regrettably a false church. That doesn't mean that there are no true believers there. There are. Nor does it mean that there's no truth to be found there. There is. But as a church, it is false. And despite recent attempts to come to an understanding with Rome and to sign declarations expressing our agreement in various areas, the Church of Rome has not changed 
one single bit. She is still the same as she always was. And for that reason, we need to pray that the Lord would reform also this church according to his word. Well, friends, what about us today? It's easy to look at other churches and see how they measure up to these marks. But what about your own church? Is your church a true church of Jesus Christ? Does it manifest the marks of a true church? And if it does, is there room for improvement? Is your church willing to do whatever it takes, even re-examine its own past habits and beliefs and practices if necessary? in order to become more and more the true church that Christ is calling it to be. You know, it's so easy to become complacent. It's so easy just to go along with the flow and not rock the boat, so to speak. But the truly reformed church is always reforming. And if there's one area in our church life that needs to be reformed, then we must reform it, looking to the Lord for grace and for help. Even if that causes us pain and division. And so the true church is known by its marks. But it's also known by its members. And that brings us to our second point. So having listed the marks of the true church, our confession goes on to list the marks of its members. And I quote, With respect to those who are members of the church, they may be known by the marks of Christians, namely, by faith. And when they have received Jesus Christ, the only Savior, they avoid sin, follow after righteousness, love the true God and their neighbor, neither turn aside to the right or the left, and crucify the flesh with the works thereof. End quote. Now, at first glance, this statement appears a little bit out of place. After all, isn't this article about the true church and how we may distinguish it from the false church? Why is it then that there's this statement here about the marks of the members? Well, again, this is included here to counter the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church places more emphasis on the church. It teaches that the Roman Catholic Church is the mother of all believers. All who claim to be believers, therefore, must be members of this church. In fact, the impression is sometimes conveyed that as long as you're baptized and confirmed in the Roman Catholic Church, you have nothing to worry about. Your salvation is secured, even if you hardly ever attend church for the rest of your life and live as a total heathen. Now, there's a tendency to think that way in Protestant churches as well. There are some who seem to think that their church is the only true church, and that as long as you're a member of their particular church, you're okay. But friends, that is completely wrong. Outward membership in the church does not save us. One not only needs to be a member of a true church, one needs to be a living member of that church. Now, what does that mean? Who are the living members of the church of Christ? Well, our confession gives several marks here. First of all, it says a living member has faith by which they receive Jesus Christ as their only Savior. Now, that's the most important mark of any true Christian. A true Christian trusts in Christ. He looks to Christ and his atoning sacrifice on the cross as the only hope and ground of his salvation. But he does more. He also avoids sin. And that goes hand in hand with the first mark. When we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we will avoid sin because we know that sin grieves the Lord and disrupts communion and fellowship with him. So we avoid it. We flee from it. 
Thirdly, a living member of the church follows after righteousness. That's the flip side. We must not only avoid sin and flee from it, we must also follow after righteousness. That's what it means to repent. Repentance involves both of these. It involves turning one's back on sin and striving to do that which is pleasing to the Lord. Fourthly, a living member of the church of Christ loves the true God and his neighbor. Now that's the ultimate test, isn't it? The summary of the law is that we love God above all and our neighbor as ourselves. The person who does this proves that he is or she is a true believer in Christ. Fifthly, a living member does not turn aside to the right or the left. In other words, the true believer is one who perseveres. The true believer is not one who has faith one day and not the next, who loves God one day and not the next, who follows God one day and not the next. No, he is consistent. He turns aside neither to the right nor to the left. Now that's not to say that a believer sometimes doesn't backslide. He most certainly does. And there are plenty of of examples of that in the Bible. Think of David. Think of, of Peter. But the mark of a true believer is that when he does backslide, when he does fall into sin, he will always return to the Lord in faith and repentance. He won't remain in his sin indefinitely. And if he does, then he never was a true believer. Sixthly and finally, a living member of the church crucifies the flesh with the works thereof. In other words, he strives by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit to put sin to death in his life and to walk in a new and holy way to the glory of God. Well, friends, these are the marks of a true Christian. Let me ask you, are these things also evident in your life? Do you, do I manifest these marks personally? Well, must we not confess that we don't, at least not always, and certainly not in every respect. Our confession acknowledges that as well. At the end of this third paragraph, it says here that there remain in every believer great infirmities. But, and this is what distinguishes a believer from a non-believer, they fight against these infirmities through the Spirit all the days of their life, continually taking their refuge in the blood, death, passion, and obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom they have remission of sins through faith in him. See, the key here is is Christ. None of us is the kind of member we ought to be, nor will we ever be, at least not in this life. But our standing before God, friends, does not depend on anything in us. It depends solely and exclusively in the finished work of Jesus Christ. My friends, if any part of our standing before God was based on anything in us, we would surely perish in our sins. But thank be to God, it is not. It is all in Christ. And the true believer knows this. And that's why when the law comes with its demands, the true believer takes his or her refuge in Christ. For he did what we could never do. He paid the penalty for our sins on the tree of the cross. And he also earned for us the righteousness that we need in order to stand before God and live. And that means I don't have to be afraid. If I'm in Christ, God no longer sees my sins and shortcomings Also as a member of the church, he sees only the perfect righteousness of his son. In Christ, I am what I am called to be. In Christ, I have all that I need. Does that mean I no longer have to strive and fight? Not at all. The Bible still calls us to become what we confess. But we do not do this alone. We do this through Christ 
who strengthens us and who is able to present us faultless before the throne of God's grace and as a living member of his church to live and reign with him forever. Amen. Dear friends, we always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you were blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road. Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can email us at banneroftruth at frcna.org. For those who take the time to write, I will gladly send you a free copy of the Belgic Confession of Faith so that you can more easily follow along as I explain each of its 37 articles. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.